0: I'm
1: Susan Moran. And I'm Jane Palmer. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you
0: smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 3rd, 2015. Coming up, we'll hear about some of the winners and losers of a thawing Arctic from Dr. George Hunt of University of Washington and from a leader of the indigenous Sami people of Norway.
2: The bottom line is that we have not had the resources to do the research necessary to answer really fundamental questions about what sorts of processes are likely to happen in the high Arctic as ice melts back and gets thinner.
1: And we'll be hearing about a new project to improve wind forecasting in mountains and valleys from University of Colorado researcher Julie Lundquist.
3: Forecasting the wind can be even harder than forecasting snow on the Front Range in spring, but these forecasts are critically important if we want to shift our electricity generation to renewable sources in coming years.
1: Before jumping into our features, we have an enticing item on the science calendar. This Wednesday night, February 4th at 8 o'clock Mountain Time, PBS will broadcast the first episode in a TV series called Earth, A New Wild. It's about humankind's relationship with the wildest places and most fascinating species and whether they can coexist with people. Dr. M. Sanjian, a senior scientist at Conservation International, will host the series. So check your local PBS station. Oh, spoiler alert, Norway's reindeer will be featured on the show.
0: You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. So, I'd like to bring you a snapshot of a conference I just attended in Norway's Arctic city of Tromsø. It's called the Arctic Frontiers. About 1,400 scientists, political leaders, environmentalists, and indigenous people called SAMI gather to discuss climate and energy issues in the rapidly changing Arctic.
1: First, tell us what it's like in Norway's Arctic in January. I'm imagining you don't see much sun at that
0: time of year. Was it absolutely freezing? <laughs> no sunscreen needed. Well, actually, not as freezing as I thought. I mean, when I first went there three years ago, I thought it would be absolutely frigid. But Trumps is 70 degrees latitude, well above the Arctic Circle. But thanks to the Gulf Stream, it's not that frigid. So it's about... 27 you know the high of 27 degrees low of 10 at least when i was there and although the sun didn't even peak above the horizon until january 21st that was the first time since november the sky cast this magical pre-sunrise and post-sunset hue for several hours oh and i saw the northern lights three nights in a row which was awesome (laughs) right above the city and a little away from it
1: sounds beautiful
0: what were some of the key takeaways for you on the
1: science front though
0: Yeah, so on the science front, basically there's no question that the Arctic is thawing faster than anywhere on the planet, except maybe Western Antarctic Peninsula. But after that, it's really complicated. So there's still so many unknowns regarding how things are actually changing in different places and to what effect. So one of the tracks at the conference was ecological winners and losers, how the receding and thinning ice in the high north will actually affect different species. So during a break... I asked um, a professor named George Hunt, he's a research professor of biology at the University of Washington, which species appear to be the most vulnerable? And here's a snippet from our conversation.
2: If we're trying to assess who's hardest hit at the moment, it is probably going to be the polar bear. That's one of the things that is hardest hit. Whether it will be the hardest hit in the long run is a different question. Uh,
0: Meaning, if it will adapt and become a gruller bear, or
2: well, the polar bears um, do spend time on land. Some of them spend most of their time on the ice, but they that we do know that in some areas where the ice is pulled back, such as Hudson Bay, the polar bears are using alternative terrestrial foods that that they might not have used. If they were uh, ice available nearby and seals, they're,
0: they're foraging just like other bears. Do, well, right?
2: they're 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 foraging on things like snow geese and other nesting birds, and the chances are these are not as good prey for them as seals. But if we're, we what we don't know is what is the long-term implication of that. Uh, clearly, they have adapted to living on ice and hunting on seals on ice. And if that becomes less available, it will be a challenge for them.
0: He also said that seals, particularly ringed seals as well as walruses, are super vulnerable because they depend so directly on the ice. Listeners may have seen some haunting images not long ago of thousands of walruses hauled up on land and trampling their own pups. So, are there any winners so far? Yeah, is anyone coming out ahead? Um, so far, actually, certain species of fish and certainly fishing industries in some areas are winners so far. And here's what Dr. Hunt had to say:
2: In the Barents Sea, over uh, in the European side of things, uh, the warming water is good for cod. Uh, Atlantic cod is known as Arctic cod over there. It's the Arctic cod stock, but it's a, it's an Atlantic cod. And they are, their numbers are, are high, they're expanding, and they're actually expanding their distribution northwards, so they're up around Svalbard now. So they're going north and a broader range? Broader range. The interesting challenge for them may be that this stock of cod traditionally goes down to the, the west coast of Norway to the Lofoten Islands. To, to spawn. And so, as their feeding area gets further and further north, it's an open question whether they will shift their spawning area north or their distance north will be limited by their need to return to the foraging area, or the spawning area.
0: And then, another fish species he mentioned that's uh, kind of a winner is the capelin, as he describes.
2: Another fish of the same. Uh, is the capelin, uh, a a small fish that's used for forage by a lot of birds and mammals. Uh, It currently spawns in the Barents Sea, at least. It currently spawns on the northern shores of Norway and probably Russia. And it then does an annual migration northward following the retreating ice edge and feeding on the rich zooplankton community that's feeding on the ice-edge algae bloom. And again, the question is, what happens to the energetics of these fish as that ice edge gets further and further north? Will they change their foraging grounds and foraging way? Will their populations start to decline? Or will they change their spawning area? And if they do that, what is the impact on... The mackerel and the herring and the codfish in the southern Barents Sea
0: What about uh, human winners and losers? Yeah, here's the rub. Well, so big beneficiaries of a thawing Arctic appear to be the shipping and tourism industries, and by tourism mainly cruise ships, um, despite plunging oil prices, also the oil and gas industry. And meanwhile, some coastal villages in the Arctic, including in Alaska, are already suffering effects from permafrost thawing and big waves eroding some of the coast. And right now, some indigenous people, these called the Sami, who live in northern parts of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia we used to call them LAPS, um, actually are fighting against wind and other renewable energy projects, the very projects that are aimed at curbing greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, there's a big standoff now happening between a wind energy developer and some Sami people. The president of the Sami parliament, her name is Aili Keskatalo, addressed the Arctic Frontiers Conference and spoke with me about how the Sami would support offshore wind farms and, in theory anyway, farms inland in or near big cities, but they're saying no to a windmill park that has been proposed on land where reindeer graze.
3: There is Swedish research that has uh, uh, followed reinde- reindeers both before uh, the windmill p- plant um, was established and afterwards. And they have documented that uh, the uh, moving patterns of the reindeer uh, re- reindeers have, uh, have changed Uh, So they do not use uh, the areas in the same way, and because there are no new areas to where they can go.
0: So some scientific studies on reindeer generally show that they avoid areas where there is human disturbance, including, say, construction of wind parks, but also roads, pipelines and telecommunications lines. But the studies don't point to higher rates of illness or mortality from such construction, particularly after it's constructed. So there are just so many trade-offs and nuances, cultural, economic, and ecological, in this effort to combat climate change, clearly not just in the Arctic.
1: Thank you, Susan, for that dispatch from the Arctic Frontiers Conference. We hope to be hearing more about it in the future.
0: You're so welcome.
1: You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. Now, the strong sound of wind, the, wind is tr- the sound of strong wind is something all familiar with living in the Front Range. You've been hearing about resistance to wind projects in the Arctic, but here in the Here, in the Front Range, the wind industry faces another drawback. It's difficult to know how the wind is going to blow near the mountains. For power systems to be reliable, the operators have to know when to expect blustery gust or when to expect a still, breezeless, calm day, and that means they need accurate wind forecasts. To that end, the Department of Energy has just given a substantial grant to a coalition of organisations in Colorado to help improve wind energy forecasting in mountain and valley regions. Here to talk to us today about the goals of the project and how that money will be used is Julie Lundquist, a professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Colorado. Welcome, Julie. Thank you, Jane. So just to recap, what's the goal of this project?
3: Well, as you pointed out, there are a lot of attractive features to wind energy. It doesn't require any water to produce energy after the wind farm is installed. And of course, there are no carbon dioxide emissions. But because wind is variable, sometimes there is no wind, sometimes there's a lot of wind. And so in order for electric grid operators to be able to use wind-generated electricity, it's very important to be able to forecast how much wind energy will be available at any given amount of time. So the goal of our project, which, as you said, is a coalition with many partners, including University of Colorado at Boulder, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, Vaisala, which is an international firm that has offices in Louisville, Lockheed Martin, with also offices locally, as well as several other universities and national labs. Our goal is to focus on how to appropriately forecast changes in wind energy production in areas of complex terrain. And by complex terrain, I mean, mountain areas or river valleys. And we're focusing on the Columbia River Gorge, which is the river that separates Washington State and Oregon State. And almost 5 gigawatts of wind energy is deployed in that area, making it very attractive for a project like this. Okay, so the forecasting at the moment isn't quite up to the job, is that correct? Well, it's important to remember that you know wind energy forecasting has kind of grown out of weather forecasting, and weather forecasting has developed for decades. And it's very fair to say that our ability to improve forecasts in general has improved substantially over the past decades. But those forecasts are tuned to be able to predict what human beings cared about for many decades, specifically surface temperature and how much precipitation there's going to be. So these models... Models are tuned to predict those things. Now, when we're trying to forecast wind energy generation, that means that we have to predict the wind not just at the surface, but at 120 feet to 400 feet above the ground. And so that's a slightly different take on what we've been asking forecast models to do. And that makes the problem much more challenging, but also much more interesting.
1: Oh, yes, of course. And then um, the difficulty here, this is specifically for mountains and valleys. And I thought if you could predict wind, well, surely you can predict them in mountains and valleys, because it's not like the mountains or the valleys move. Yeah. You know, you should be able to <laughs> exactly. model it around them, but but there are unique challenges to that. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's good that you pointed out that when you have complex terrain like mountains, some forecasting gets easier. So, for example, here on the Front Range, we know that if there's a high-pressure region over the Rockies or in Utah in the Great Basin, we know that there's going to be a Chinook event, or a very strong downslope wind event in Boulder. We know that, so we get the big picture. But the details are very tricky to capture, and those details depend a lot on the exact orientation of the mountains and the valleys and the wind direction as they go in and out of those valleys. So, for example, imagine that you're trying to take a picture of a landscape scene, and it's really important that your camera has very high resolution so that you can not only capture the entire landscape, but the details of the rocks and the trees that may be important to what you're looking at. So for our problem, we're trying to do numerical simulations and forecasts, so we need to not only get the big picture of the weather, but we also need to have very high-resolution simulations so that we can capture the details of the picture that cause these gusts of wind to increase or decrease, because these changes, these increases and decreases in wind, are really important for power grid operators.
1: Oh wow, so it it really does have to be very high-resolution then. Will we be looking at the future maybe of seeing like a map and um, being able to see the wind on like a kilometer grid level?
3: Okay, now now you're talking about kilometer resolution. That gets people like me very excited because we we live in a great time for scientific computing. So the ability to take our models to higher and higher resolution has dramatically increased in the last several years. And specifically to increase or to, specifically to forecast wind in areas of complex terrain, we really need to use high resolution. But it's not enough to just throw big computers at the problem. It's also really important to make sure that the physics that we have wrapped up in the computer codes that those computers are running, that those physics are appropriate. And now that we're going to higher and higher resolution, there are physical processes that are not represented well. And computer models. And so, our job in this project is to collect many observations using uh, remote sensing instruments, using lasers, using radiometers, using weather balloons, using towers, so that we can carefully and accurately describe the physics that leads to these increases and decreases in wind. So, if I understand correctly, you're going to use
1: the observations to validate or refine your models, your existing models.
3: Yeah, exactly. So we'll be taking measurements over an 18-month period. And during that 18 months, we'll be taking careful measurements at the wind farms also so that we'll be able to build a catalog of challenging events that were not forecast well with the current state of the art. And then we'll be able to go back and use all of the detailed measurements that we've collected for those events and be able to go, okay, well, we missed the fact that there is this temperature stratification where, you know, hot air was layered over cold air. And that was really important. So how could we have put that back into our forecast model? And that will help us kind of zoom in on the physics that need to be improved. And we have some good ideas about the physics that we want to fix. But of course, the observation will dictate what we focus on
1: okay so in the meantime really the first stage of the project is yourself or your students and and how (laughs) how many recordings and where do they have to go once you know what's actually going to be involved on the footwork side of this
3: Well, there's a lot of footwork and fieldwork that needs to happen at the front end. And in fact, next week, many of us from Colorado are going to be going out to the Columbia Gorge. Uh, Graduate students and the undergraduate students don't get to go yet. But uh, many of the scientists will be going out to identify optimal locations for sighting our instruments. So we have a couple of wind farms where the, the wind farm owner operators are collaborating with us. And we have some sites identified for setting up our instruments. Most of the field deployments will start to take place in July and August. And so, of course, graduate students at CU and from other universities will be going out to help set up the instruments. Um, As you can imagine, when we're doing renewable energy work, it's very easy to attract uh, very ambitious and very enthusiastic and highly skilled students. So we're we're all very excited about the opportunity to do some field work soon. All right, great. And then is it a case of... um
1: going out setting up the instruments and um and then the instruments are just recording away and then how often will the students or yourself be visiting those instruments and taking readings off those instruments
3: well in a perfect world instruments would never break and so we could set them up and we could log into them remotely using you know internet connections and satellite connections and then go back and pick them up in 18 months in reality it doesn't often work like that, although we would like it to. And we're um, you know very satisfied with the instruments that we have right now, but we do have budget planned for visits out to the instruments to check on them. But with all of our instruments and all of our field experiments, we usually routinely log into our instruments remotely so that we can download data and check on them.
1: Okay. And you're going to be taking recordings for 18 months? 18 months, yes. So how long after collecting the data do you think you'll be able to start Defining the models and producing better focus?
3: Well, if we were able to restrain our enthusiasm, the proper approach would probably be to say, okay, let's collect the data for 18 months and then we'll look at everything. But what will probably happen is that we'll be monitoring continuously, and after a few months we'll see some very interesting events that look like what we are expecting to find in terms of uh, best forecasts. So probably as soon as we see an event like that, we'll get excited about it and start doing simulations of that event and start doing the careful analysis of that. So I would say that in the first several months we'll be able to start looking at some results. But the goal is that you know this is a multi-year project, So after we do our data collection, there will be a period of very focused simulation studies. And it's important to remember that it's not just doing the simulations and fixing the models and then declaring success and, yay, we've solved a problem and forecasts will be better. We also have a significant amount of effort put into making sure that what we learn gets communicated back out to the wind energy industry and the atmospheric sciences community in general. So, for example, when we chose the forecast model that we're working with, we're using NOAA, NOAA here in Boulder, NOAA, um, NOAA's high-resolution rapid refresh model, and that's used by people who have interests in weather all over the world, for agriculture, for transportation, all kinds of things. So what we do, we'll get back to them because it goes through that operational data stream through NOAA. And then we'll also release our improvements to model physics through NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research also here in Boulder, they maintain the repository for this open source weather prediction code that anyone can download and use.
1: Okay. And is it true, I don't know, I've just got this inkling that most of the wind farms are on relatively flat land at the moment. Is that correct? I mean, I'm just calling to mind, I think of Denmark as being huge when it comes to wind energy and yeah, Denmark's flat.
3: Yeah, Denmark is pretty flat. <laughs> I've, I've yeah. been there a few times, and, and that's true. And a lot of Denmark's wind is actually offshore as well. But in the United States, we have some re- really interesting terrain. So a lot of our wind resources in the U.S. are in West Texas, or in Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, that region, the Great Plains. And there's some good meteorological re- reasons for that. If you look at East Coast wind farms, they tend to be uh, sited on tops of ridges. Because as the wind flows over a ridge, it will experience some speed up usually. And actually, if any of the students in my wind energy meteorology class are listening, that is a question on the exam on Thursday. (laughs) So I'm glad that you're listening. They better be listening. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So so there is a little bit of speed up on a ridge. And then, of course, in the Columbia Gorge region, um, there's very complex terrain around the gorge. Some of the wind farms are on the edge of this river valley. Some of them are actually in the river valley. And so one of our collaborators who works very closely with one of these wind farms has pointed out that there are times of day when one half of the wind farm is experiencing incredibly strong winds and the other half has quiescent winds or no wind at all. And so the complex terrain has a huge effect there. Right. Yes, that is complicated. So if you're looking forward to the future,
1: um, you know, could you see... Would you hope that this will play into renewable energy becoming a bigger player in Boulder's energy portfolio?
3: Well, it's a little bit difficult to think about Boulder as isolated from the rest of the state because of the interconnected aspect of our power grids. But Colorado in general is doing very well. Um, I think in 2013, which is the last year for which we have data, I think in March the 2014 numbers will come out. um, Colorado in general was at 13, over 13% of our electricity came from wind energy. And that's eighth in the country. So Colorado, in general, is doing very, very well. And um, in terms of forecasting to facilitate the integration of wind energy into the grid, Colorado is also the home of an important wind energy forecasting project carried out by NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and funded by Excel Energy, which has greatly facilitated the the, um, incorporation of wind-generated electricity into grids, not just in Colorado, but in Minnesota, Texas, New Mexico, and other states.
1: Okay. And so part of this project is is really going to be increasing confidence in wind energy. We know what the wind's going to do. We can afford to make this part of our structure in our grid.
3: Yeah, it's an important part of bringing wind into our energy portfolio in a big way.
1: Great. Give us a timeline.
3: How long do you really hope this will take? Well, we know how the Department of Energy will fund us, so we have to hit those targets. But we're we're optimistic that there will be many more uh, wind energy forecasting projects in the future.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Julie. Thank you, Jane. That was Julie Lundquist of the University of Colorado talking about a new multi-organisational project to improve wind energy forecasting in mountains and valleys.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Kendra
1: Kruger is our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sigur And thanks to Kendra for engineering today.
0: Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Susan Moran.